been a pretty emotional day. I want to thank you all for your understanding and how sweet you all have been, especially our elders. You know, I went to each one of our elders' homes and talked to them individually. I felt like I owed them that. And I want you to know that every single one of them said, Chris, we love you, and because we love you, we want what's best for you. And I just cannot thank them enough for that. I want to address real quickly some questions that you've all asked. I figure we'll address them all at once. And if you still have questions, you're welcome to come to me. But um, the start date of November the 6th, uh, you know, when we talked about that with Walnut Street, um, I told them one of my concerns was being away from my wife and my son for six months. And um, they mentioned that, um, that it would be great if we could see each other quite often. So they budgeted for eight times for me to fly home or them to fly up there and see me during that six months. So that made things a little better. Um, selling our house and both of us getting an apartment was kind of thought, talked about. They said, don't worry about that. We have a house fully furnished. You can live in, no rent, no utilities, anything like that. So that helped us tremendously. And the reason we settled on November the 6th is because we felt like they gave enough time to get through the elder selection process here. And then also you've got Thanksgiving, you've got Christmas right around the corner, times that I will see my family. Uh, Another question has been asked, will you continue the podcast? When I interviewed with the elders, the first question they asked is, will you bring the TV show and podcast here? So, yes, we're going to do that. Ripple of Light will be flying up and trying to figure out what we need to do to get that done. And, uh, but we're going to continue that. There may be a little lapse in the programming for a little while, but we'll get it done. Thank you, Steve. So, any other questions you have, feel free to come to me in the next couple of months. I'll be glad to answer them, but I just... I thank you so much for your patience with me and how loving you've been today. Um, now, to the sermon, and I'm going to say this like I told my junior high students when I taught health. Don't ask questions and don't laugh and we'll get through this, all right? You noticed how at television programs that they cut to commercial right before something suspenseful happens? That always seems to be the case. And then when they come back from the commercial, they repeat like two minutes worth of the program that you already saw. I guess they figure that 10 minutes of commercials is long enough that you forgot what was happening before. It's rather annoying, but I'm going to be annoying this evening, and I'm going to rehash for just a second. And you'll remember that this morning we started in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe this with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you believe that God created everything around you? Or do you believe that everything just happened? I think I asked it this way. Do you believe that the beginning was an act or an accident? And the the entire discussion on sexuality and really any other topic depends on how you answer this question. It all comes down to this. What you believe about God and eternity and anything else, how you approach life, is going to be based on what you believe about that statement. And I said this morning, it shouldn't surprise us when someone who doesn't share our worldview disagrees with us. There are many people who don't believe in God, who don't believe in the Bible, who believe that all of this happened by chance. They still may believe in morality and ethics, but they don't share our worldview. And so rather than getting worked up into a lather, maybe we should work to soften hearts and to maybe preach the truth in love. What lens are you looking through? That's really the question. 
What lens are you looking through? Do you believe in a divine design? And if you do, then it shapes everything else you believe. The Bible informs your beliefs and behaviors, and it starts right here in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe this, then you have to believe that what's true of creation in general is true of sexuality specifically. The question focuses on design, not desire. It focuses on purpose, not preference. And it focuses on truth over feelings. Now you move down to verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this passage tells us two very important truths. Number one, God made you and stamped you in his image, therefore you have value. Every single person has value, intrinsic value, because they were made by God. And secondly, it tells us that God made us male and female, and what he made was very good. And so all questions about sexuality and gender identity point back to Genesis 1.27. Sexuality is a constitutive part of human nature and the human experience shaped by God's will for his creation. But it is not the singular defining aspect of human identity. Our culture presents it that way. Our culture wants you to believe that your sexuality says everything about you, that who you are at your core is defined by your sexuality. But this morning we said that is not true. Your sexuality is a constitutive part. It's a component part of who you are. It's an important part of who you are, but it doesn't say everything about you. Who you are at your core is defined by God. Your identity is found in Christ. And that's what says everything about you. That you are stamped in the image of God and the fingerprints of Jesus are all over you. That he is molded and shaped. He's continuing to mold and to shape you. And so you, you find your identity in Christ. He says everything about you, not your sexuality. I want to point to another piece of scripture that might seem irrelevant or out of context on the surface, but I think applies to this discussion as well. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I like how the contemporary English version renders Ephesians 6, 12. It says, we are not fighting against humans. We are fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. Folks, we are not fighting humans. We've got to frame the fight correctly. All too often we spend our time battling against the government, against the pagan, against the atheist. People are not the enemy. They are the victims, not the villain. Understand who the real enemy is. God expects us to fight the correct fight against the right enemy. And the enemy is the devil and his forces of evil. In our culture, there are two extremes when it comes to sex. Sex is God or sex is gross. And that's the two extremes. It's either obsession or suppression. It's either an idol or it's taboo. In the church, we tend to focus on just about anything and everything else except this subject. We like to talk about sex. As I said this morning, everybody around us is talking about it, and we avoid it at all costs. Why? 
Well, because it's a bedroom issue. And honestly, it's a little embarrassing. You ever be watching a movie with your parents when you were a teenager? And a love scene came on? That's uncomfortable. You'd hide your eyes, they'd hide your eyes, or they'd fast forward through it. That's embarrassing. That's uncomfortable. It makes us squirm. And the very mention of the word sex tends to make us squirm, especially in a public setting like this. However, our young children are confronted with sex and sexuality on a daily basis. Everything is doused in sex. It saturates our society. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. Marriages are being destroyed due to a lack of sex, extramarital sex, or lackluster sex. Yet in our churches, we remain tight-lipped for fear of being made uncomfortable. If we do talk about sex, we tend to focus on the restrictions. We talk about the don'ts. We might even use scare tactics to steer teens away from the very idea of sex. We sometimes act like sex is a tool of the devil rather than a gift from God. The way we present it in a nutshell is often like this. Sex is the most scandalous, sinful, shameful thing in the world. So save it for somebody you love. <laughs> but go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want you to notice that God blessed Adam and Eve. And after blessing them, he told them, basically, go and have sex. Go and fill the earth with little icons, little images of me. They'll look like you, but more importantly, they'll look like me because they are stamped in my image. But we have to understand that there are conditions and limitations that were associated with this gift. Sex is something that God intends to occur between a man and a woman to enjoy as part of the marriage covenant. It is a unifying act. It brings couples together. It is an honorable expression of love and intimacy. So we said this morning, it is God's divine design. Sex is not man-made. It's not self-directed. It is only ordained by God when it occurs within the confines of marriage. And there's a reason that God placed boundaries on this sacred gift. Because in his, in his infinite wisdom, he knew the destruction that it would bring when sex occurred outside the boundaries of marriage. He is well aware of the power of lust. He knows all about the urges and the temptation to satisfy those urges. He knows all about the allure of the God of sexual pleasure. And he is keenly aware that Satan will use this idol in, any, in every way to cause us to stumble. The God of sex whispers in our ear and attempts to entice us to remove all the restraints, to cross all the boundaries, and just to run amok. So it's crucial for us to understand that God has put these restraints and these boundaries in place not to oppress us, but to protect us. You may not like wearing your seatbelt. may be uncomfortable, but there's a reason well, we should wear a seatbelt to save our lives in case of a tragic accident, right? You may not like sitting at a red light. You'd rather keep going. You're, you're busy. You've got things to do. 
But red lights help save us from a collision, right? One of the purposes for sex as given by God is procreation. The command given to Adam and Eve was to go and make babies. Now, sex was the physical act that God used to populate the earth with people made in his image. And we know that this is still a purpose for sex. From Adam and Eve on into our modern era, sex has been the means by which we multiply and fill the earth. Of course, we don't have children just because we want to populate the earth. And there are some who would love more than anything to have children. But due to circumstances beyond their control, they're not able to. And I certainly want them to understand that this doesn't mean that they have not fulfilled God's purpose for sex. Not in the slightest. One of the basic purposes for sex is procreation. But through the years, many religious folks have tried to make that the only purpose for sex. And that's simply not true. It is a purpose. It's not the purpose. Think about it this way. If procreation were the only reason why God created sex, then why did he create sex in the manner that he did? Why not just shake hands and get pregnant? Why not just stare into each other's eyes for five minutes and a pregnancy occur? Human beings are the only mammals that have sex face to face. I think that's important. There's a reason for that. He could have used any number of methods, but he didn't. Why did God create sex like that for us? Just anatomically speaking, without looking at Scripture, one can see that there is a deeper purpose to why God created human sex the way that he did. Let's go to Scripture. That one book that you weren't allowed to read growing up, Song of Solomon. Let's look there. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The writer says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat, fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools of, in Heshbon by the gate at bath Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. <laughs> Try using that on your spouse. <laughs> Guys, next time that you're uh, out on a date with your wife, tell her how beautiful she looks, like her tummy looks like a bale of wheat. Tell her, that, uh, tell her that her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. And when she slaps you, just tell her it's God breathed. That uh, comes straight from Scripture. I'm sure she'll understand. Makes you wonder if there was a long-lost sequel to the Song of Solomon that told about this guy's death because he said these terms of endearment. Your head crowns you like caramel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are my love with all your charms. It's interesting that when you read through this, that if nothing else, Song of Solomon exposes the biblical truth that sex was not designed merely for procreation. It's a purpose. It's not the only purpose. But secondly, God also designed sex for recreation. 
If you read through Song of Solomon sometime, you see that it's describing in very vivid terms the sexual experience between a husband and a wife. This is in my Bible? Yeah, absolutely it is. It's so much deeper than the act of conceiving a child. Look at verses 7 through 9 of chapter 7. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. He's starting at her feet and he's working his way upward and looking at her. And in a very tender way, he's exploring and enjoying every square inch of her. God did not intend for sex to be a mechanical exercise for the sole purpose of producing a child. He meant for sex to be enjoyed. He meant for it to be a pleasurable experience. But, and here's a point we cannot afford to miss. Sex is not selfish. Genesis 2, 23 through 25, it says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God brought man and woman together. The two of them became one flesh. And when God takes two people and he joins them together as one, we call that a marriage. And it is through the marriage covenant with each other and with God that this spiritual commingling occurs. Notice what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So sex isn't just about procreation. It isn't just about recreation. It's also about unification. It's face-to-face, intermingled bodies, one flesh. It is a reminder that you and your spouse are one. Sex confirms the covenant. The two of you become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. It's a unifying act, or at least it should be. That's why sex outside of marriage is so destructive. It creates guilt. It creates emotional turmoil and baggage. It it doesn't unify. It divides, not to mention the fact that it's sinful, it's destructive to one's soul. Only within the covenant of marriage can a man and a woman be naked and unashamed because covenant equals oneness. You cannot satisfy the solemn requirements of the covenant by stepping outside the covenant and introducing a third party. Newsflash, God is not going to send you somebody else's spouse to be your soulmate. When a married couple engages in sex, It should reinforce oneness. And that's why I mentioned that sex is not selfish. All too often, it is treated in a self-directed manner. It's about my wants, my desires, and as long as I'm satisfied, that's all that really matters. But that's not what it means to live as one. That is divisive. That's not unifying. When all I care about is myself, then that doesn't honor the covenant. The primary purpose of sex is not your personal happiness. It is an integral part of the whole. It's not the most important thing in a marriage, but I can tell you it is important. And I can tell you through years of experience of postmarital counseling, when things seem to be going well in that department, you have less and less problems. It's not the only thing, but it is an important aspect. With that in mind, allow me to share some ideas or some suggestions 
for our married couples or those that will be married one day that I think are important. These come from, again, that experience in premarital and postmarital counseling. Some of this you've heard before because Trey and Lee talked about it when they were here earlier this year. First, I would say, guys, it's important, and this is something we talk about in premarital, premarital counseling constantly. Guys, you're a microwave. Your wife is a crock pot, and you've got to understand that. You've got to understand that you are different beings sexually. Because if you don't understand that, you're in for a world of heartache and, and, and misunderstandings. With you, you're ready to go at a moment's notice. With her, it takes, it takes time. And so plan during the day. Send text messages. Get out the vacuum. Do the dishes. Empty the dishwasher. It's your house too. But do something. Don't expect her to be in the mood when she comes home and you just plop down on the couch and, and don't do anything. You're going to constantly ask her when dinner is going to be ready. You're probably going to be sorely disappointed when bedtime comes around. To the ladies, I would say never view sex as a chore. This is something that I deal with quite often in postmarital counseling. It's a common problem. Be happy to be intimate with your husband. I say the, the wives because that's most often what I deal with. It saddens and frustrates me when I encounter couples where the woman acts as if she's doing her husband a favor by having sex with him. Neither husband nor wife should assume control of the bedroom. Sex should not be a decision that is left totally in one person's hands. Sex is not merely a reward, nor should it be used as a weapon. Men, pay attention to your wife. Praise her. Tell her how beautiful she is. Comment on her, her new haircut. You can never overpraise your wife. Be her biggest fan. If she asks you how your day was, tell her. Communicate with her. Don't ignore her most of the day and then expect her to cuddle up with you at night. She'll begin to think that her only worth to you is sex. So constantly show her that you love her for more than just physical reasons. And ladies, understand that one of your husband's top needs is admiration. You ever read the book, His Needs, Her Needs? I think it should be required reading for married couples or even in premarital counseling, we assign that book. If you look at the top five needs for a man and the top five needs for a woman, you'll notice that they're very different. A lot of the same things are on the list, but they're reversed. Anybody guess what the number one need for a man is? Yeah, <laughs> sex. That's on down the list for a woman. It's not number one on her list. And just understanding that is huge. But one of the top needs for a man is admiration. And so, ladies, if your husband had a fan club, you'd be the president. Tell him how much you appreciate his providing for the family. Tell him how much he makes you happy. He's motivated by praise and never, ever, ever put him down in public. Drives me nuts. When I see men and women putting down their spouse in public, I want to punch them in the face. Don't put your spouse down in public in front of people. Praise them always. Never hide things from your spouse. This is another one that I deal with quite often. There are certain things that are off limits. One spouse won't let their other see, the, see their phone. They, want them, they won't let them have access to their, you know, to their bank account or to you know, their pen uh, or, or you know, their, their, their code on their phone. Certain things are off limits. Nothing should be off limits. 
No right to privacy. Openness leads to accountability, and that's a great thing in a marriage. And then I would say this, keep pursuing one another. I hear this often, well, you know, the kids just come first. They shouldn't. They should come third. God, you and your spouse, and then the children. I realize that at a certain age, especially when your kids are really small, they demand a lot of your time and attention. You will never find more time. You've got to create it. Put a lock on your bedroom door. Find ways that you can be alone. Work at developing that intimacy. Keep pursuing one another. Keep the courtship alive. What you did to win her, guys, do that to keep her. Work on your appearance. Do the best with what you got. Sometimes it's hard, but do the best with what you got. Guys don't always be walking around the house in those holy sweats and and that old t-shirt that's got stains all over it. Ladies don't always come to bed with pimple cream and rollers in your hair. Do the best with what you got, right? And please don't give each other your crumbs. Don't give each other your leftovers. You will you will never find enough time, so you got to create that alone time. Invest in ways that you can be together. Don't put your relationship on hold while the kids are growing up because when they leave the house and go off to college, you're going to look across each other at each other across the dinner table and say, who are you? And not even remember where this whole thing started. Don't put hobbies or work above your marriage. You are one. Don't live your life as if you're divided. No one in your family is going to suffer if you put your marriage first. Your kids will benefit. Everyone else will benefit because you love others best when you love God and each other most. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning of verse 3, he said, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I want to highlight those words. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul is emphasizing what? Unity, unification. We've talked about this before. All of Paul's letters emphasize unity in some way, shape, or form. Unity within the church, and here it's unity within the household, unity within a marriage, unity within the sexual relationship. Paul is not suggesting that either should take advantage of this oneness and demand sexual submission. He's simply stating that it's not only about you and your wants or your desires. You live for someone else. You live for God, you live for your spouse, and depriving one another of one another is not healthy. And it violates what God has designed. Sex is a good thing. It's a gift. Treasure it by enjoying it within the confines by which it's been created. When Zane was about 10 years old, we were driving the 10-hour drive to Paragould, Arkansas, and it was just me and him. I had him hostage in the car, and I thought, you know, this probably be a good time to have the talk. Talk about the birds and the bees and just kind of lay it all out there. And I was very, very nervous. And so I built up the courage at about Texarkana. And uh, I looked over and I said, uh, son, I want to talk to you. He goes, oh, okay. And I started in. And I didn't get three minutes into the conversation. He goes, oh, yeah, dad, I know about all that. I go, you do? 
how do you know about all that? He goes, oh, Eric told me. <laughs> Eric was his equally young friend. And not content that uh, another 10-year-old probably gave him good advice, I asked him what Eric told him. But my point is, we have no shortage of messengers in the world when it comes to sex and sexuality. While we may exercise our right to remain silent in the church, you know who hasn't exercised that right? Everyone else around us. There's so many messengers and they're all giving a message and most of the time those messages are wrong. Whether it be entertainment, social media, movies, books, the internet, there is an endless array of messengers and of course every messenger has a message. Not only that, every messenger has an agenda and sexuality is central to our time and all too often we're too embarrassed to talk about it. Therefore, because everyone else around us is talking about it, we need to do our best to control the narrative and to promote a different message. And that starts right here. It actually starts in our homes. Because call me crazy, but I think that society suffers when the home and the church isn't strong. Somebody asked me the other day, is the church really making a difference anymore? I mean, you look at our culture, really. I mean, can you say that the church is really even making a difference? And I said, absolutely. Because anytime you have a big natural disaster, who's the first ones on the scene? Church. Who is there opening their doors to let people come in and seek shelter? Who's there handing out food? Yeah, we're still making a difference. My concern, though, is we're so worked up and we're so upset about what's going on in the world that we're taking a completely wrong approach. We're blending in with the brine. We're being soaked in the culture. And even though we don't agree with whatever it is that they are promoting, we're not any better by the way that we're handling it. So let's make sure that we're controlling the narrative and that that narrative is the gospel. It's the truth and love. Like we said this morning, some things are hard to say and hard to hear. But it's in no one's best interest to go to hell. We don't love anyone if we refuse to speak the truth to them for fear of offending them. So, let's do our due diligence to be the right messenger with the correct message and promoting the right narrative. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for Oldham Lane. Thank you for the wonderful Christians here. And may we leave this place tonight ready and willing to go out and show Jesus to others. May we promote the right narrative. May we always be about you. May we live close to you and close to your will. And help us, God, as we face difficult times, difficult situations, that you give us the right things to say, the right way to act and behave. God, we love you so much, and we're so grateful for the church, for the message. May we be about the mission. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, can we help you tonight if maybe have a need? And, and please understand, I know that not everyone feels comfortable walking down that aisle, taking the death march and, and coming up here. And, and that's okay because you don't have to. Okay? I mean, that's, that's not something that you would be biblically wrong for not doing.
Maybe you need to come and talk to me privately or one of the elders or one of the other ministers. I would love to talk with you. If I can help you in any way, we would love to help you. But if you have a need tonight, if you're struggling with something, if you'd like the prayer and support of this church family, if you'd like to begin a daily walk with God, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, we want to help you with that as well. Like we say every week, there's no reason to leave here without being right with God. So let us help you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.